This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at BurnsClan. Follow at your own risk. And of course, our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Esau Macaulay. If you are unaware of him, he is a New Testament scholar, a professor, and an Anglican priest. You might have seen some of his writings in such prominent news outlets as the New York Times, where he is a contributing opinion writer, also Christianity Today, the Washington Post, and of course, I like to throw in there, The Witness, a Black Christian collective as well. He's the host of the Disruptors podcast, and we are talking today about his second book, which is extremely popular. So many people across the country and across the world are talking about it. Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Reading While Black looks at the tradition of African-American Biblical Interpretation and argues that the Bible, rightly understood and read from a decidedly Black perspective, can speak a word of hope to African-Americans in the United States. Now, this was a very honest, open conversation. We got into some sticky topics, and I'm glad that we did, because I think for many of us who have had our voices and the way in which we approach Christianity, the way in which we approach the Bible in the American context and even abroad, have had it silenced for so long that it is good for us to wrestle with these ideas, good for us to hear the affirmation of the Black biblical interpretation. As you know, here at The Witness, we like to talk about being Black-centered. Of course, our mission is we are designed to encourage, educate, and empower Black Christians to be free in our souls and our bodies. So I hope this conversation with Esau Macaulay gives you some jet fuel in your engine, and it also gives you the tools as well to approach the Bible from a decidedly Black biblical perspective. So Without further ado, we're going to get into this conversation that I had with the Reverend Dr. Esau Macaulay right here on Pass the Mic. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Dr. Esau Macaulay, thank you for joining Past the Mic. What's going on, brother? How you doing? Oh, man, I'm doing good. Just trying to finish up a semester of teaching and, and getting ready to have a Christmas break. Man, that is incredible. I know you've had a whirlwind of a 2020, not just because of COVID and everything, all the challenges with social distancing and the personal things that you've had to walk through, which we all have in, in different ways. But, man, you released a book, Reading While Black, and it has been tearing up 
social media and the charts and people have been talking about it. I have to ask you, man, did you expect this sort of reception when you wrote the book? No. I mean, <laughs> it's so funny when I, that's the, the, so people, the book is about hermeneutics. So it's about like how black people read the Bible. And I started work, I started writing um, this book and I think I want to say 2017. And I, I, I want to give people like at least a little bit of a picture into like what that means. People say, what did you expect? Mm-hmm. When I was trying to get, <laughs> I feel like, um, you know what this sounds, this, I, I keep thinking about whenever I tell this story. And this hopefully doesn't sound arrogant. Hopefully it sounds, you understand the spirit in which I'm saying it. Do you know how like in the last call at, at the end of Kanye West album where he has like this 10 minute soliloquy about how he got signed to, uh, to, um, to Rockefeller. But when I, when I started writing the book, I didn't even, I wasn't even on social media. And so I remember you, for those people who don't know the game, you got to like send out a contract to um, the publisher and say, why should they publish your book, right? Um, and so at the time, I wasn't on Twitter. And I said, like, I, I think I had like 500 followers on Twitter. I think, no, it was actually, it was 700. It was 700 followers on Twitter. And I remember trying to boost myself up by saying, but I got 2,000 friends on Facebook. And so, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't, it wasn't a Facebook oh, page. It's just like my cousins and everything. And so at the time when I signed it, like I didn't have a public profile at all. And so, and 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 in some sense, it was it was freeing because I was just writing the book that I wanted to write, and since nobody was paying attention to me or what I was doing, it was super easy for me to sit down and write it. And so to see how my life, not just like the reception of the book, is being um, uh, something I never expected. Like my public ministry is something that I never expected. So no, I did not expect it to do as well as it has. You know, it's interesting, man, because I think we're living in a modern resurgence of the importance of, you know, both the Black witness and also the Black word in broader society. You know, when you think about you writing this book right now, it seems like it's the perfect time for this book to come out. Um, yeah. What do you think about this moment and why uh, an excavation and really a, a deep dive into Black hermeneutics is so important for the church right now? In a way, there's a lot of ways to talk about it. You can say in some sense America doesn't change. Um, obviously, we make progress. And I, I want to say we're a more just society than we, are, we were in 1965. But the basic problem of like, what do you do about being Black in America is this persistent problem that exists in American culture. And so there's these spikes in human in, 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 our, in our culture where we are tending to that question more intentionally, right? But it's not that like it's ever just easy to be a Black man or a Black woman in America. And so I can write a book that deals with um, policing, um, public protest. Um, what it means to be black and Christian, because these are perennial, perennial questions for black people. And from the moment that we were we were put here and we, we encountered the Christian tradition here, that has been a struggle. But not only that, I think that one of the things that happened, and people often talk a lot about, even though he, he ain't here, but I like to talk bad about Jamar anyway. Uh, people talk about <laughs> People talk about our books as like companion pieces, and they're related in this way. And this is actually like, I've never actually talked to Jamar about this. Let's see if he agrees. Coming out of like what happened in the election in 2016 and even leading up to it, there was like a, 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 a large attention turned towards an, a, a, an analysis of American history and a close reading of evangelical culture. So you have a book like The Color of Compromise. You have a book like um, uh, 
um, Jesus and John Wayne. You have that book on like race and doctrine. So people are starting to say, well, man, when I look at the history of Christianity in this country, I see all of this brokenness manifesting itself. And so in that sense, it, it can lead you to like a despair. Can I be an authentic Christian if Christianity is tied through all of these compromises? And so what makes my book like a companion piece to like the work of what Jamar is doing is that it's like looking at the exact question that people are trying to answer. If this is what happened in America, then what does it look like to be a Christian? And the place to what does it look like to be a Christian in America that takes seriously, this is the important part. This is the part that I love about like black Christianity and why I think it is like crucial in this moment. We just never believe the propaganda. Like we never believe the lie. So like you can go back as far as you as you want to go into early black Christianity and see a strong critique of American exceptionalism. So we literally have 250 years of practice of being Christian in America while believing America is fundamentally broken. And now for people to, who, to come today and say, well, how do I be a Christian once I recognize that America is broken in a lot of ways? Well, then you have the example of the black church. And so that's the reason why the hermeneutical method becomes so helpful, because it allows people to have access to a way of being Christian that isn't linked to exceptionalism, but it's also not nihilistic, right? The, the, the African-American Christian tradition, because of its like dialogue with Black nihilism and a bunch of other things, has had to articulate a Christian theology of hopefulness in the face of a culture that tempts us to despair. And so I think that I think that coming out of 20, I mean, 2020 has like been a dark year. Right. Um, and so anytime you talk about hope, it is it is helpful. I hope if I if I wrote my book well, I hope that it wasn't like a cheap hope, right? A, a kind of like let's all hug each other and get along, but a hope that takes this, the the problem, like the thing that's standing between us and hope, very seriously. Yeah, you know that is very helpful for us as we kind of zoom out and think through the broader story. You know, I was having this conversation with someone, and he asked me the question of, "Man, how do we get here?" and and I tried to flip that question back and say, "It's not how do we get here; it's how do we start here?" Right? We've been yeah. here for a while. Can you talk a little bit about your meeting with the Kojic Church? Um, you know, coming from a Pentecostal background, that made my heart leap and my feet dance a little bit. Uh, how did that influence you to lend your voice to this resurgence? How did that influence you to take those steps um, to really speak out about some of these things? Yeah, let me let me put a little bit of context. I'm assuming that everybody hasn't read the book. Um, um, so what I talk about is inhabiting these different communities. And when you grow up in the Black church, and, and and this is just a fact. People need to understand this. Like if you like 95 percent of people who are educated theologically are going to have to enter into white spaces, either progressive white spaces or conservative white spaces, because there's only like seven historically black co- seminaries left. So all you literally could not fit every black pastor into those seven seminaries. And we just don't right. know. We don't understand enough about how the world works to even know where to go all of the time. And so you you then begin to have this experience of being trained theologically in white spaces. And you begin to ask the question is, am I crazy? Am I crazy for having these mix of beliefs that nobody around me seems to share? And am I crazy for holding on to them? And do I just adopt one of the options 
that are on offer, either kind of white progressivism in the mainline tradition or white evangelicalism in the other tradition. And I'm I'm going through my life thinking like there's another way of doing this, but I'm not sure if anybody else agrees with me. I don't know if I've been out of the community for too long doing education, if I become uppity. And so I'm giving I'm giving this talk. I, I will never forget it, man. I'm giving this talk. So in the book, I'm talking about writing the book and then going to this talk. So it's super meta right. if you pay attention to how the book's it's like <laughs> yeah, I exactly. step out of the book and say, and I'm talking to these black pastors, and I'm and I'm literally talking through the content of chapter one with these black pastors, where I say, I'm not completely at home in progressive spaces because there's some theological places where we differ. Um, but we agree on issues of justice and other issues of social concern. When then I go into evangelical places that kind of, in, in principle, affirm, affirm the authority of scripture. But when it comes to living out those scriptures, there's a strong disconnect. And I'm talking about this tension. And then the one, of, and this is in front of the Church of God in Christ. I'm not even Pentecostal. I'm from the Black Baptist tradition. And like th- this part didn't come. This part didn't come into the book. I should tell you this since you're Pentecostal. Like yeah, yeah. I've come been on, hanging, around, I've been, I've been hanging around, I've been hanging out with Anglicans for so long, and I was wondering if I still had the spirit in me. And then one of the one of the um, Church of God in Christ bishops said, "Brother, we will ordain you right now." He doesn't understand like what that cosign was because I, I remember heard... when you posted that. I remember <laughs> yeah. when you posted that. Easter. I remember that. That was like he spoke into my soul. He was like, "We see you, brother." And um, like I hadn't I hadn't heard a call and response in like a decade, but I I, I slipped back into the pocket. It's like one of those old rappers who still got it. And so uh, they ha- they hype me up. Pentecostal get you hype. So they hype me up. But they stopped me in the middle of like me outlining these different traditions. And the Church of God in Christ pastor asked me, he, he, he literally said to me, where do we send our people? He said, where do we send our people? He said, we send our people to some schools, and this is what he says. It felt, it felt empowering for me not to feel like I was coming for people. He said, we send our people to some schools and they come back not believing enough to even leave their congregations anymore. That's what he said. He wow. said, so we're, we're wow. afraid to send our, our, our students to certain places. And then he said, we, we send them to other schools and they feel like their blackness is stepped on. He said, where can they go where they're affirmed, like they're, they're, they're their identity as black people is affirmed and their theological convictions are confirmed. And I said, brother, I don't know. But that gave me that when he said that it gave me confidence. He put, he put words to a feeling of discomfort that I had, that I had lived with for so long. And the truth is oftentimes we just settle into one or the other because the tension becomes too great. The tension becomes too great. And we just say, you know what? It's much easier if I just settle into this space. Or it's much easier if I settle into that space. And to be honest, that meeting kind of spurred on what became that chapter in Reading My Black. Because I'm going to say this exactly how I feel it. And I don't care who gets mad at me. So that was like a moment of freedom for me to say, if I say this, then I know there'll be enough Black people who share that experience to where I won't get killed for it. Right. You know, I, I think I've seen that too. I think people have resonated with the book in that way because what they're trying to figure out is how do I thread this needle of, you know, you talk about this later and we'll get into this, you know, peacemaking and truth telling. How do I thread this needle and also remain faithful to what I know about the scriptures? I want to talk a little bit about this this core root of a black biblical hermeneutic, like an African-American hermeneutic and interpretation of scripture. You mentioned, and I want to quote this directly. Your claim is that then the Black biblical interpretation has been and can be 
unapologetically canonical and theological. That's number one. Number two, socially located. Number three, willing to listen to the ways in which scripture themselves respond to and redirect black issues and concerns. Number four, willing to exercise patience with the text. Number five, willing to listen to and enter into dialogue with black and white critiques of the Bible in hopes of achieving a better reading of the text. Now, from those five areas that you're trying to make an argument of, I want to ask you this question. Which one of those elements do you believe is most neglected? Which one of those elements do you believe people pass over the most? And it's crucial for us not to neglect this reality of Black biblical interpretation. Well, it depends on the, on the community in which you, you are in. Um, I will speak, I'll speak about evangelical spaces, then I'll speak about other spaces. Evangelical spaces struggle with, believe it or not, um, theological and canonical interpretation. And the amazing thing, I should say to this, if you want to read like mm. what, I, so I, I, I'll, I'll put a footnote on the on the bibliography. What I mean is I talk about the Lord of the Rings theology that sometimes dominate these spaces. It's called like the one verse to rule them all. And so it's a, here's the verse that deals with this idea, and this is how I'm going to develop my theology. And they will say something. This is kind of, this was slave master exegesis back in the day. Well, you have first Timothy chapter six, verses one and two, and that's the end of the question. But then if you go and like, and I promise you, you should read Lisa Bowen's book, African American Readings of Paul. And she goes it's through on this. It's on my step. list, man. It's she on goes my list. She goes through this step by step by step. I wish that book had been out because I could have just footnoted her because she has all the receipts. Go back and read. Here's a couple of them. Read the, the the letters that the slaves sent to Connecticut and Massachusetts asking for freedom and look at how they use the scripture. Because they say, yeah, I see your little first Timothy chapter six, but they would say, well, hold on. The Bible also says that, that, that parents um, should submit to their parents. Well, how can a child submit to me if you're going to pull this child out and send it off to slavery? How can a husband and a wife have a lifelong covenant if you're going to sell my wife? How can you bear my burdens? If you, if, how can I, how can we bear one another's burdens when you're forcing me to do so? Yes, you could talk about the slave passage in the Bible, but you read the entirety of the book of Exodus and God is a liberator. So you see how the African-American mm. tradition, when forced with a couple of proof texts, says, what does the entire Bible say? It's actually how, and this is what I try to say this, the African-American way of reading or answering the question of slavery becomes paradigmatic in American Christianity. Because you, if you ask anybody about whether or not slavery is good or bad, they will say slavery is bad. Why? Because God's fundamental character is one of a liberator. And you know who was saying that? Black people and the, and those and those black people said it and they're in the primary documents. And the the slave masters who read it said that you are reading the Bible incorrectly. So there were two hermeneutical roads that diverged. And so when I call this African American hermeneutics, it is because it is what black people said. So that's what, and so, so, and then what I'm saying is that same lack of a canonical interpretation still becomes problematic. The other thing is talking about God's character. So, I mean, this is James Pennington. James Pennington said, I'm not going to argue with you about this verse and that verse. He said, I'm going to ask you, do you believe that the God of the Bible wants you to do these things to us? So he argues from God's character to liberation. The other one, anthropology. This is this is ultimate theological. There was a, there was a, there was a claim about what black people were that we were subhuman, 
And black people said that is a faulty anthropology because um, Acts 17, 26 says, from one blood, he's made all mankind to dwell upon the face of the earth because we all have a common ancestor. We're all equal. So these are theological ideas. Anthropology. God's character. These are canonical ideas. What do you see when you read the Bible as a whole? So I would say that like that canonical and theological reading needs to be recovered. The other one that I want to, I want to talk about on the other side is patience. And this is tricky because I understand why people are, are unpatient. Because the Bible has been used so often to step on Black people in this country, the the instinct has been, well, we need to get rid of this Bible so that we can get free. Mm-hmm. And and there and the hard part, the hard thing to do, and this is why I say to people, they're like black secularism and black progressivism, it's probably the most understandable theological development in the history of Christianity in the West. Like it can make complete sense why you would end up as a black secularist given what happened in this country, even if you disagree. And so the hard part to do is to talk patiently. And this is why I think it requires love and humility to talk patiently with our brothers and sisters who are alienated from the Christian tradition to develop enough patience with the text to find in that text what I think is actually there. That's a, a God who's a friend and not an enemy. And so I think that like those are the two tensions that um, I mean, a lot of the people who um, who I deal with who are like outside of the Christian tradition. The God that they're mad at isn't the God of the Bible. It's the God of the colonizers. Hmm. And you have to you have to find a way to 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 destroy that idol so the people can encounter the living God again. What is the most effective way of destroying that idol? Like because I think it's important for people to hear that. I think there are many of us who are listening, uh, many people in our audience at Pastor Mike who are just honest about the fact that hey, I get what you're saying. I totally understand. I'm with you on the biblical interpretation, but this is the struggle. How people have used it is is just so oppressive. And I'm trying to convince other people and I'm trying to walk alongside of my friends and my family. What is the most effective way of crushing the idol of the God of the colonizers? One of the things, and this is why I talk about um, the work of um, uh, something like Jesus and John Wayne and Colin Compromise is so important, is that you have to tell the truth. What I mean is we have to stop defending a lie. And sometimes, even when you do with something like the Bible and slavery, we try to say that things aren't so bad, so that the solution doesn't need to be that drastic. Hmm. But when people don't believe that you know it, that people don't believe that you feel it the way that it happened, then they're not going to listen to your solution. So the closest that I come to is saying, is like the close, the hardest chapter in the book to write was the chapter on Black Rage. And if people haven't really read the book closely, read the first 2,000 words of that chapter where I talk about the litany of suffering that um, Black people have experienced in this country. And I feel like in a Black context, you can't come in there scared. You have to be able to articulate it as it happens so that when you are addressing when you bring the hope to it, you're bringing the hope that addresses the pain that is felt. And too often, I don't think that people really believe that Christians understand the depth of the problem or the scope of the alienation. And so you need to say, no, 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 no. Like they kidnapped and raped and burned and beat black people. And they did it in the name of Jesus. And the dehumanization of black people was a consensus for 200 years. 
Jim Crow happened. Slavery happened. The Great Compromise happened. That is the that that is the only context into which the gospel comes in North America. And so, um, if you can't speak about it, then they, then they're not going to listen to you when you try to solve it. And so, to me, it requires like a non-defensiveness around like what actually occurred. So that like, I mean, this is what I'm, and this is what I'm saying to you. This is the reason why so many people struggle in this moment of um, racial reckoning and why some institutions never change. I don't want your sympathy for how I feel. I want mm. you to acknowledge that it actually happened. Don't deal with my emotions as if my emotions are separated from the facts of history. This is what happens, right? I'm so sorry that black people feel upset about what happened to them. I empathize with them, but I actually don't believe that what they're saying is real. And if you don't believe what I'm saying is real, then you can't help me. And so I think that we have to, and this is the scary, I mean, I talk about it as like a ticket, a ticket into the room. You can't even get in the room unless you can explain what actually occurred. And if you're going to be a black Christian that goes into black secular spaces, you need to, you need to be able to talk honestly about what's going on in the, in the nature of the problem. Yeah, I think, you know, to that point, Esau, not just the Black Rage chapter, but I think also in you talking about Romans 13 and in other spaces, you do a really good job of interweaving your own personal experiences with the hermeneutical principles. And every Black person I know has an experience with the police. And every Black Christian I know has an experience with a white Christian quoting Romans 13 to them. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so it's like, there is a sense in which that is at the beginning of the book intentionally, because that is one of the most common verses and common refrains that you hear in times of protest or injustice. Can you can you talk a little bit about this? I felt like it was important for us to really dive deep into this because it's so common for so many Black Christians. Yeah. So Romans 13 is this, um, you know, you should submit to the state and, you know, pay your taxes and those kinds of things. And this is commonly, this is commonly used against black Christians. One of the amazing things to do, and I, and forgive me for like talking about Lisa's book, but I, I was reading it yesterday that she gets to this a lot too. If you go back and you read black Christian writers during the revolutionary war, mm-hmm. they're actually saying, Hey, how can you justify rebellion against Britain? And then argue for black submission and not giving us freedom. So the first thing we need to understand before we get into like the exegesis of the Romans 13 is the blatant hypocrisy that permeates this entire discussion. Yes. Yes. When when are we told to submit to the state and when are we not told to submit to the state? Is it self exercise in power? The second thing that the thing that I wanted to get at though is that sometimes Romans 13. Um, the purpose of Romans 13, you got to think about what's going on in the passage. It is the case that Paul is saying that um, Christians should submit to the, the ruling authorities. But in the context of making that statement, Paul also articulates the responsibilities of the people who are in authority. So he says, yes, Christians, you should submit. Why should you submit? Because Christians, because the authorities should do certain things. And one of the things that he says very clearly is that the state should not be a source of fear to those who are innocent. And what I want to say is, if this was actually the case in North America, we wouldn't have a problem. The the, the fundamental criticism, the fundamental critique of African-Americans as it relates to policing in this country is that we have fear even when we're innocent. So Mm -hmm. Paul's Mm -hmm. statement 
that the state should not be a source of fear for those who are innocent is an implicit call for the state to actually be just. And here's the secondary part of this. Here's the secondary part of this. Paul is speaking in this context of an emperor, right? So in in a, in a context of a monarchy, the, the person who bears the sword is the emperor. Well, we live in a democratic republic. We don't have an emperor. It, we're, we're, the, we're we the people, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if, if, it's, if we're we the people and the job of the government is to not be a source of fear for those who do right, then we as Christians who are a part of shaping the government have a responsibility to make sure that the government does what it says it's, the Bible says it's supposed to do. So we are responsible for creating a culture of policing in which black and brown people can flourish. And that's not that's not playing games with the text. That's not tossing Romans 13 aside. It's a way of saying, let's read the whole thing. The last thing I want to talk about, and this is like and, and I, the book, I get to it, but I want people to understand at least what I'm trying to do in the first part of this chapter. I think we 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 sometimes read into the call to submit to the state a misunderstanding of God's activities in the world. And what I mean is this, in Romans chapter 9, Paul says to, um, Paul quotes the Exodus story where God says, for Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I'm, that I, that, that I might be glorified in, in, in liberating my people. So in the Bible, in Romans chapter nine, in the same book where Paul says submit to the state, he talks about an example where God is glorified by people not submitting to the state. And so what that shows us, and if you go back and you read the rest of the Bible, you read the book of Daniel, where it's all the prophecies about kingdoms rising and falling. You read the book of Isaiah, where God talks about kingdoms rising and falling. It becomes clear. You look at the book of Revelation, talks about kingdoms rising and falling at the will of God. Mm -hmm. It becomes clear, crystal clear, that God is at work judging nations at every moment of human history, raising some up and tearing some down. So just because God says it's not your job as a Christian to discern your role in God's purposes as it relates to revolution, it doesn't mean that God isn't at work bringing about, bringing about people's freedom. In other words, what I think was going on in Romans 13, I think this is actually an important point, is that it is very dangerous when the Christian cloaks what they're doing in the language of God's will, because that becomes a source of oppression. Most of the Most of the wars— they call they bring the most shame upon the Christian tradition now are precisely the wars in which Christians have said, God told me to do this. And that always wow. is a justification of wickedness. Yep. So when Paul yep. is saying you can't call upon divine sanction for violence, it is a rightful humility about the Christian to discern our will and God's purposes. Now we can often look back in history and say God is at work in this. Like I can look back in history and say, God was at work. Actually, I don't even have to be the one who said it. The slave said it, right? Juneteenth, God brought us freedom. So I can say, looking back definitively, that I believe that God was at work bringing about the liberation of black people. But whether or not I can say on the front end, this activity that I'm about to do is God's will, is a tricky proposition. And this is where something like the Moses story becomes really important. Moses, in the beginning of his life, see, he rightly diagnoses the problem. Man, they mess with God's people, but Moses didn't kill somebody. And he ends up having to run away because it's not God's timing. But in the fullness of time, God even used the same guy. He still used Moses, but at the time of God's own choosing. And so I really think that Christians aren't, at least to me, if you're going to be a biblical Christian, we're not at bottom anarchist. But we do believe the government has created 
for our good. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that God isn't at work. So part of the role of the church, and forgive me for rambling on about this, part of the role of the church is to, is to, is to be the prophetic voice to the culture. And you see this. You see this coming between 1776 and 1865. You see black pastor after black pastor after black pastor stand up and say, America, you are in deep danger of God's judgment. You see, you see that same kind of rhetoric coming out during the civil rights movement that you can't do wickedness forever, that God's going to, that there's going to be consequences for these actions. And so it is the job of the church to always be the people who tells the state the truth about the danger that it is in. But that seems to be the limits, the limits of our competence, at least as I read the New Testament. Yeah, you know, and, and that is so helpful because it ties directly into your next chapter. I think it flows so well together as you talk about the political witness of the church, um, a, a chapter entitled Tired Feet, Rested Souls. You say in this point, and you emphasize it, peacemaking then cannot be separated from truth-telling. And so what you're diagnosing is the fact that peacemaking has been elevated above truth-telling or basically being seen as mutually exclusive, right? The pursuit of unity versus the pursuit of justice. Can you talk a little bit more about this, not just from the biblical perspective, but also how it's applied in the practical perspective? Because I think for many of us, we're trying to navigate these calls for unity with these calls for justice, and navigate reconciliation with actual equity. Yeah, books always change people, right? Um, when you go on a journey of writing, mm-hmm. and one of the things that changed about me, and I don't, I don't know where I um, got this from, but it's a sense of decorum. And what I mean is, I thought if I spoke in a reasonable way and that I equally denounced both sides, the people would listen to me. And then I go back, and and so like moderation became kind of an implicit. Um, value of mine, and wow. I went back wow. and I re- I went back and I read Frederick Douglass. I just like read it, like of course you kind of read excerpts. And I started reading like Black Christians during the antebellum period, and I looked at how they talked about America, and I said to myself, I can't be more afraid than these brothers who actually existed when slavery was real. <laughs> exactly. Brothers and sisters, exactly. brothers and sisters. So let me make sure I say it correctly. These brothers and sisters who spoke at, at real danger, like they enslaved states condemning slavery. I mean, you about that life. Yep. And yep. so I said to myself, and I began to realize it. Well, hold on. If you're going to make peace, you can't make peace by pretending everybody's equally wrong about the same. No, no, no. In some situations, this group is wrong and this group is right. So if my if my son punches my sus- my daughter and my daughter kicks him and hit him, hit, him, hit him upside the head, now look, they're fighting. That's true. But if he punched her first, he set it off. So he's going to get extra punishment, right? And and he hitting his little sister. You see what I mean? like, you, you, you doubly wrong. So I don't just say, well, both of y'all did something wrong so I can denounce y'all. No, no, no. You bear the responsibility. So if a Christian is going to be a peacemaker in America, you can't be a peacemaker by pretending like we're equally guilty. You can only be a peacemaker by telling the truth about what happened. And so peacemaking can't be separated from truth telling. And so you have to say, as it relates to the injustices that like happened in America, y'all bear this much of the responsibility. And there's no other way of talking about it. And of course, because the grace of God covers it all. Like you, this is what I'll say to people, to other people. Okay, let's say you're doing marriage counseling, right? 
and one person in the marriage is having an affair and the other person, you need to deal with the affair. You can't just say, let's forgive each other, forget about the past and move forward. It's like, hold on. There's a broken trust here. There, there might be some other dysfunction that we need to deal with if we're going to save the marriage and go forward, assuming the marriage is savable, right? So you can't just say, well, I know that she cheated and I know that he did. No, 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 no. We need to get to the heart of what led to the relationship breaking down so that relationship can be healed and move forward. And so that's what I mean. And that's what I mean. And so Jesus, Jesus did not come and say, yeah, man, the, the Romans are bad and, you know, some of my own people are bad. Let's just be united. He's like, no, 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 no. Woe to you Pharisees, right? He called them by name. Woe to you Sadducees. You do this. Pharisees, you do this. And if you want to be a part of what I'm doing, you need to repent of these particular behaviors that are particular dysfunctions of your community. Yeah, and you know, Esau, I, I, I really want to, I really want to ask this question, and this is really spontaneous because it's not, yeah. it's not in my questions. But it, you talked about is it salvageable? You know, speaking of your yeah. metaphorical analogy about the marriage. Yeah. What's your stance on this now? You know, after having written the book, seen what you've seen over the past five to six years, been in these spaces, you know, is it salvageable? Do you see a point where there will be that? I, I know you're trying to maintain hope, not just in the theoretical, but also practically no. and, and and applicably. So, do you see it as a salvageable relationship with black and I, and Christians I, and the broader Christian context? Yeah, I mean, let's let's put let's we always got to speak honestly. You're talking about can black Christians and white evangelicals get along, which is an interesting it. question for me to ask. And when I work at white evangelical institution, <laughs> no. So, like, like that's what, like you got to keep it 100. So, ask me. It's fine. Um, so, what I would say is this. I think everybody has, you know, you have things that people like that people don't pay attention to. The most important article that I wrote and that I really believe, seriously, that one of the most important things that I ever wrote that clarified my thinking more than anything was an article that I wrote for y'all like three or four years ago, I think after the election, called After Lemonade. Yeah, yeah. And that article, forget whether or not it was well written, it articulated my thinking that hasn't changed. And the and it's important to me, I'll, give me 30 seconds. In the article, yeah, no, I talk about okay. how um, um, Lemonade, the album, the Beyonce album, came after like Jay Z got caught got caught sleep got caught cheating, and then the real question became like, well, what is Jay Z going to do after he got put on Front Street? And for those who know hip hop, four forty four is like the Confession album, and the Confession album is what led to kind of as, at least as it looks from the public square, the ability of them to go forward after that event, mm-hmm. and I felt like. Um, after 2016, actually even before 2016, even coming into that election was like the great, like breakup, like lemonade album that every black, even every black person who is adjacent to white spaces wrote their breakup album. Like I'm done with y'all, but it was almost like we secretly wanted people to apologize. Like we wanted people to go, Oh, I'm sorry. And they'd write 444 and then we come back and, and like, be back together. But this is this is what I want to say to people. It has been four years and that apology is not coming. So if you mean, if you believe, if you feel like, and that's what I mean, and, and and I understand why it is necessary. So like, I always need to make sure that I'm very careful about this because p- historians need to be in the work of documenting hypocrisy. So there's a record. They're doing it again. Like even the, the most recent thing, like you can't do any critical race theory in any form where you kick like that's that's that same kind of like 
the, the, the upset about that is it's read as a message saying, we don't want y'all around here. So if you're waiting for the entirety of that tradition to embrace blackness, then that's a fool's errand. It just is. Short of the resurrection, um, like, you know, maybe at the, at the reconciliation of all things. But is there hope for some cooperation? What I call the coalition of the willing. This is a multi-ethnic church, right? When I talk about the multi-ethnic church, I'm not talking about like the multi-ethnic church is like every church is multi-ethnic. But let you talk about like you, you, you've you seen in the last four years, like the awakening of our Asian American Christian brothers and sisters, right? Who are, who are being more vocal on issues of justice than they have in the past. You have um, the black church continuing its, its steady witness, even though it has its own complexities. You have our Latino and Latino brothers and sisters. And then you have portions of evangelicalism. So if you say, is there enough, is there a plurality of Christians who have a holistic gospel? The answer to that question is yes. If the answer, if the question is, do I believe that the entirety of the church is going to come over to this side, then the answer to that question is no. Um, but the, the, but that may seem more depressing, but the church is always compromised. Mm-hmm. The church is always yeah. compromised. And what I would, and anybody who goes deep in history sees this, but I will say this, it is rare that God is left without a witness. There we go. Here's your, there, there you are. This is the witness, right? Hey, that's no, my drop. That's my yeah, drop for yeah, the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you see what I mean? Like that's, yes, that's the point. Yes. And so I, when I, and so I'm at the point now where I don't even like respond to like 90% of that stuff. The only time I, I, I do respond is like, I don't want people to feel like I'm not responding because I'm scared of y'all. So every now and then I say, no, 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 no. I'm riding with them too. Just because I don't tweet about it every day. I'm I'm feeling it, but I just don't feel like my vocation is um, as much contemporary cultural analysis as, at, at every move. Because as a biblical scholar, I have a slightly different lane, and I'm very hesitant. I'm very hesitant to turn into a pundit. And I really believe, and this is important, this may not seem relevant, but I really believe in people understanding their call, right? Like, you are a pastor, and the president of the witness, I want to give you, I want to give you your respect now. Like, let me give you your title. I appreciate it, brother. I you know what I mean? It, like, but like, that is the vocation, right? Right, right. That's different from being a historian, especially, that's different from understanding like contemporary American history and politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am trained in biblical scholarship. So my posture is going to be thinking about how the biblical text speaks to the issues of the day. And I have to be very careful about this. And this may seem like y'all may not care about this, but the reason, because I am a Bible scholar and Bible is the, is, is the discourse, the parts of evangelicalism, they sometimes present me as the more acceptable person. It's like, no, 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 let's understand. I just don't have those tools. It's not that I don't, I don't believe in anybody being able to use them. So don't use my biblical studies-ness to step on somebody else's ministry who has a different set of tools that they use to engage in culture. Mm, mm-hmm. And so do I think, get back to your question, do I think there's hope? On one level, I do think that there's hope because I see it. The other problem is like, there's a difference between um, white evangelicalism as a, a force that exists like in the world that does things as a community. And this is not the overly personalized stuff, but it's also the lived experience of people in community. And it will simply be dishonest of me to say that there are no white people that I know who care about justice and black people. That would just be dishonest. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there is a. I wish I could think of that Taylor Gray song where he says, um, "We got." We, 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 he's a pastor. Of church, he's a Christian rapper. Oh yeah, Taylor's and, one of my boys. Man. Yeah, Shout he, out he, to Taylor, he, man. He has, to, he has this line where he says, um, "We're brothers. And we don't pretend like we don't see color." There's like a line in one of his songs, and so it would be dishonest of me to say, like, you know what? Every single white evangelical that I know is trash, and therefore we need to do A, B, and C. That's just not my experience. Um, and we could talk about we could talk a little bit more about it if you want to ask me a follow up question. I've also just inhabited different spaces, um, and a lot, and not that my denomination isn't perfect. We got our own issues. Trust me, there'll be folks who probably mad that I'm on this podcast with y'all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Um, but I'm just being completely 100. A significant portion of the black trauma coming out of evangelicalism was black people who who were who were in the reform tradition. And I just wasn't there. And so for that reason, I don't have the exact same experience of some of that trauma. Now, my tradition gets to my nerves. Don't think that we utopia over here with the Anglicans. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is our story is a little bit different. Yeah. So what I'm hearing, Esau, and this is helpful to hear this because I don't know if we've ever really even talked about this in, in depth like we are now. What I'm hearing is that your personal experiences are leading you not to make a broad generalization about the state of what it is, but to understand biblically and to understand from this, you know, kind of historical perspective, hey, we're not going to get this blanket apology that we're expecting and looking for. What do you say to the people who would kind of push back and say in this context, and I'm I'm saying the people, I'm not saying myself, because I think there's, you know, I wouldn't necessarily fall in this camp, but for the people who would say, man, when you think about the, the, historic white Christian response to injustice on yeah. a whole. Yeah. There's just no way to to square and reconcile any white Christian being an ally. I want to ask you that hard question because I think it's really honest that's yeah. where many people are. They're yeah. saying, listen, I don't know if any white Christian can be an ally because all these, the fruit from all these trees, the, at the core, the roots are rotten. So yeah. how can any white Christians be allies? What would you say to that? Because I think it's important for us to really speak to where people are. Yeah, I think it's important too. So this is where theology becomes important. We just because, In the same way you can't ontologize blackness, you can't ontologize whiteness. And what I mean is, and, and let, me, let me be careful about like the ways in which this language is used. So when people talk about whiteness as a theological construct, the people who participate in it, I'm not talking about that. So I'm not talking about that idea. What I'm saying is when you say the sentence, a white person, and by that we mean like the racial group white is incapable of doing something, it is the, the like, it's just, it's, that's not a theological statement that I'm comfortable making. That's like me saying a black person can't do A, B, and C. Now, you can say that like the, the history of people doing that may be somewhat pessimistic, right? But I just don't believe theologically that God creates people in, in, social, in certain racial groups who are incapable of doing things. I just don't believe that. Like, and that's me saying, like, you know, I'll put it this way. You could say, <laughs> this might sound weird, but it's important. Hear, hear the theological reasoning here. Everybody who, who died before Jesus stayed dead, but Jesus is back. But once Jesus right. is back, the resurrection changes our plausibility structures. So when I believe that nothing is impossible with God, then I believe that nothing is impossible with God. And you can't make, you can't construct the theology of whiteness that the resurrection can't transform. Now you can say something like, this is different. And I want to, this is the problem. This becomes really messy. If you start talking about um, 
certain theological characteristics that you call that thing whiteness, say people need to disinvest themselves from that. That's a different kind of conversation, right? Where you're saying like, you need to give up certain privileges to function in society, whatever, all of that. I'm not talking about that. I am saying, theologically speaking, you can't say if you're a Christian that because someone is white, they're incapable of doing A, B, and C. Unless it's good macaroni. I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. You're going to get in trouble for that one. No, but I, I think that's that's actually really helpful for me to hear you distill the difference theologically because I don't necessarily typically think of it as capability as much as it is, you know, nature versus nurture, right? I don't think yeah, it's so, as much as yeah. nature as is, you know, the nurture of the conversation and the nurture of the environment that you grew up in would lead you to naturally and natively do certain things versus others. Yeah. I think that's actually really helpful for me to hear you theologically distill that out. Now, listen to what I'm trying to say to people. Like, you have to think about, like, what is possible. And, like, you have to, like, the question is, what is a Christian allowed to say is impossible? And to me, I don't believe that there's anything that's impossible. I mean— for a Christian, like, you know, why is it for, like, Paul says, why do you think it's difficult that God raises the dead? Once you got a God that defeats death, and this is not, this is not me running away from, this is the reason why I talk about in the beginning of the book, I got to tell you that I understand the nature of what you're talking about. So when I say I believe the resurrection overcomes it, what I'm talking about the resurrection can help us overcome. The resurrection gives us the power to be able to tell the truth and become different kinds of people. And I have to believe that, like, we're not so doomed that, now, that's the reason why I think that um, individual change is possible. Some institutions can change, but uh, society is like the the chances of an entire society making the kinds of shift that we dream about, like relies on an evolutionary account of the human person that I think that goes against the biblical tradition. Like we believe that human like, like the human kind kind of resets at um, birth. That you don't just get the privileges and the benefits from the previous generation downloaded. So your kid doesn't just wake up 30% less racist than he did than the previous generation. That kid is born (laughs) with, if nothing else intervenes, the ability to repeat. So that's why we think that we think that young people are going to be less racist. My son came home in the seventh grade. He in the seventh grade. He hasn't been in school in a year. He looked, he opened up his math book and the math book said Trump 2020 built the wall. So a seventh grader wrote this right in the middle of an all Christian community with churches Mm -hmm. at every corner. So it's not simply the case that you just wake up and you have this progress. So I, I look unfailingly. The Bible doesn't end. Sorry, this is uh, this New Testament. Read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation doesn't say we overcame racism and injustice and Jesus came down. The book of Revelation comes with the martyr's blood dripping. The story does not end well except for the intervention of God. Right? That's what the book of Revelation is about. At a certain point, God's going to say enough of this madness. And he's going to come back and right the wrongs. So as a Christian, I don't live with a theology in which I'm going to accomplish everything that I want in society. It's that I'm engaging in, this, in society in a sure hope of the resurrection of the dead. And so the, the cross allows me, sorry, this is me being a pastor. The cross allows me to take the world as utter, as sinful as it is because it takes Jesus. The resurrection gives me hope because I'm never despair. And the eschatology gives me a future where I know that God's going to intervene. And the job of the Christian is to live in the tension between those realities. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes you can look in society and say, I see no, um, no evidence for hope. In the, in, in the data that has come back from the human experience, 
And I say you are correct, but Christ is risen. Mm-hmm. And that's why you call this an exercise in hope. An exercise in hope. Because that's the, the <laughs> book is called an exercise in hope. Because you have to, hope is a practice. Man, listen, I'm 41. I'll keep thinking about, I know people who've had a watch long enough or who've had like a, a running thing long enough to, to see your running mile times from your mid-30s to now your 40s. I'm like a minute and a half slower on my mile. And I remember like, man, I remember I used to get up and knock out three, four miles and it was nothing. Now it's cold. My knees hurt and I want to lay in the bed. But I recognize that I, if I don't want to be another black person dying of diabetes, I need to get myself up and exercise even when I don't want to. It is an act of the will, hopefully spurred up by the spirit of God. So the black Christian who looks at life in America, of course, of course, you're going to be tempted to despair. That is why it's an exercise in hope. It is an act of the will borne up by the Spirit of God. Man, this has been so helpful, Esau. There's so much that I could ask you about Black identity, Black critique of evil, Black <laughs> rage that we didn't even get to, man. But I appreciate you being honest and distilling where you come from, because I think that's going to really help some people to navigate through all of this. And that's why your book, Reading While Black, it's so important to so many, man. Thank you so much for being on Pastor Mike. We got to invite you back because Jamar's got to fight it. back after getting he he got a little heat <laughs> in his absence. Uh, so Jamar uh, got to fight back, man. I hope I hope it's all love, man. I really appreciate it. I mean, in a lot of ways, um, what you all did like created space for people. Um, and sometimes when you create space, you have to take a lot of the bullets. So uh, just know that I pray for y'all. That I appreciate the work that y'all do. Um, and that I hope that God blesses the ministry. By the way, all of y'all who still listening, donate so they can get that money. Okay. I, <laughs> I gave money. I gave money. Y'all give money. How about that? No, I really appreciate that. I brother. own a t-shirt. Man, I own a t-shirt. <laughs> I own a mug. So don't come for me if I didn't send for you. I bought a t-shirt on, and man. a mug. Come on, man. <laughs> all right, Yo, man. I appreciate it. Dr. Esau, thank you so much, brother. That feeling is mutual, man. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.